Hello and welcome to The Deal Room. This is part two of a two-part interview with Ross Blair, Managing Director at Comerica. If you haven't listened to the first part, I would strongly recommend you scroll back and have a listen. We pick up with Ross talking about what working for a high-performance team looks like, and then we go on and discuss a wide range of other topics, finishing with a quick fire round. This is definitely one to listen to for all students thinking about a career in finance. So enjoy the second part of my conversation with Ross. Tell me about, you know, I, I know that you, you, after your time in New York, you moved on to, to London and then actually did a stint in Vietnam, which we'll touch on very quickly. Um, but, you know, is, is there a particular part in your uh, career at HSBC where you had just a, a brilliant team or a brilliant management structure, felt like the cogs were really whirring and, you know, everything was kind of flying? Are, are there any examples of like, all right, I'm in the right place at the right time with the right team? Just tell me what that feels yeah. like. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and you know, back to, to, to my previous comments, like th there's something to be learned from everyone you work with, something to be learned from every role. But um, one of the one of the kind of macro learnings I had was was thinking about who you're working for, um, reputationally, brand, culture and where you're doing that job necessarily. So when I landed on the team that you came from in London, you know, HSBC is not a known entity, uh, at least where I come from. My parents didn't know it here in the States. Obviously, we have a, a, a decent footprint in, in, in New York. Um, but when I got to London, working in capital markets, holy cow, did I find the fast lane. We were hiring the best and the brightest out of the UK, out of UK uh, universities. We were doing all the flagship deals that you could see in the City AM. I don't know if that's still published, but that was a finance newspaper that you could pick up on the tube every morning. And deals we were working on were on the cover. We saw the best deal flow. We were top of the league tables. And, and it was amazing. It was a, a, a team of, at the time when I was there, it was about 20 of us, very young. You know, the, the two MDs that were kind of running the group were both in their late 30s, maybe early 40s. And so I just had some of the best mentorship that I've ever had. There was, you know, across across the whole group too. I think mentorship doesn't necessarily have to be always upwards. Um, there were people um, diagonally to me and horizontally to me who would sit down and walk me through models and decks. They teach me the kind of tangible basics as well as the intangibles about how do we think about what we're seeing in the numbers, how do we talk to clients, especially in, in potentially difficult scenarios, etc. And it, it was just again drinking from a fire hose. You know, hilariously, we, we used to have these Christmas dinners, uh, superlative awards, and two years in a row, I got most improved. So clearly, I started as a, <laughs> as a bit of a runt in the litter, um, but like to think I was really able to kind of beef up my skills and, and see a lot of the important stuff while I was there. So, so uh, that sounds like an unbelievable place to be to land uh, in the UK. You know, at the front edge, doing the deals and all of that kind of stuff. Obviously, you didn't stay there forever. And I, I can imagine it's the kind of place. It's the kind of place that you could stay there forever, right? You know, it's such a good job. It's so interesting. Why not spend 20 years working in London for HSBC? What, what, again, maybe I think you referenced it earlier. You get bored quickly. Tell me, tell me about that process to jump out of a job that you loved and into a new, exciting experience. You, you you're spot on. You're taking me right back to where I, I think I was 30, maybe 31, 32, when I was finishing that role. And that's exactly where I was. And I could definitely see a wonderful path. There, there was amazing 
people working on, on not just on that team, but that broader floor of a hundred, a uh, thousand people that were there. There was a lot of people you could look around and say, oh, that person's doing something really interesting. That person's had a really interesting career. Um, and I think there, were, there was a couple folds to it. You know, there's that famous quote, uh, uh, a jack of all trades is a master of none. Well, that, that's actually cut in half. The full quote is a jack of all trades, master of none is oftentimes better than a master of one. And so there was a, something in me that was saying, I still, you know, in three jobs, I had learned the kind of process of AML and back office. I had learned what private banking and wealth management was. I had learned what capital markets were. So part of me was like, well, what else is there? Like, I, I want to go see what else there is because every one of these jobs has been um, so expanding and in, in, in opportunity. And the other piece for me, this is, this is very personal, um, but being really, really on the IM program, there's kind of two tracks and you could be a specialist in say capital markets and you could be a really, really strong professional, have really good client relationships and spend a career um, leading a business unit like that. And that was, that was appealing, but I, I took stock with my partner at the time and, and said, you know, realistically to be really, really good in this, we will always be in New York, London, maybe Hong Kong or Tokyo. And nothing wrong with any of those cities. They're all world-class. But I think having grown up in a small town in, in the mountains, I didn't necessarily want to be boxed into some of these big cities and, and wanted a little more flexibility. So the, the other piece that that harks back to my interest in, in kind of foreign affairs and politics and, and thinking about joining the State Department before business school, the other track of an IM is to go be a country CEO. You know, at the time we were in 70 different countries. And so you either become a business head or, or you go out to some far flung market and you help run all the business units in, in a smaller market. And I wanted to see what that looked like. And, and that was really what drove me um, ultimately to, to Vietnam. So, so tell me, just on that point, I mean, look, we've already discussed four different roles uh, and, and three different countries in a massive, massive organization. When you're talking, when you're talking to university students and maybe giving advice, a lot of a lot of the questions that I get is, all right, do you go bulge bracket? Do you go big beast or do you start off maybe at a try to start off at a boutique or a smaller organization where you have a little bit more you know access to senior leadership and things like that with your experience that we've just touched upon uh where would you where would you end up landing in terms of advice for university students yeah you know th that's a hard one uh, and i think quite frankly you'll there are plenty of examples of people who've gone very far in their careers who have done the exact opposite of, of what i've done um, you know, so it, it, it's, it's one, a personal question and two, not necessarily a, there's a right formula. I think, uh, you know, the advantage of, of working at a bulge, uh, like HSBC is obviously, you know, we've got the platform second to none. So I could do five totally different jobs in, in multiple markets in places like the UK, we have the best deals, the best deal flow. Um, you know, we were hiring some of the smartest people. So we have the best people in market to learn from. Um, conversely, at a boutique, to your point, you do get that. Uh, you can build quick expertise if you're focused maybe on a specific vertical. And there's really opportunities to stand out and grow, right? It's, it's a much smaller um, sample size and you get, I presume, better access to senior management. I think for me, the takeaway and, and what I would counsel, uh, you know, people considering both is, Think about the culture. That's probably the most important. Try and find a place where you feel a sense of belonging, where you're inspired and challenged by the people around you. And I think you will naturally 
actually accelerate on whichever platform you're a part of. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And, and kind of to that point, um, we're going to kind of dance over Vietnam. That's probably a whole different podcast. Uh, but you were <laughs> often when you join one of these very large banks and you've had a few you've had a few runs and you build up some internal credibility, uh, which you definitely had through these different roles. It's extremely hard to leave. And I know, you know, sitting here now, you're not working at HSBC. So I, I just want I want your uh, your decision making process for that off ramp deciding to leave what is ostensibly a pretty nice and not cushy because it's hard, but certainly a stable job and a stable career. So just talk me through those kind of itchings to get out of the big institution. Yeah, it, you know, it, it was a really hard decision. You know, I think if, if, if you just think about it mathematically, time spent, you know, it, it's probably the second closest relationship I had at the time to my, to my wife. Um, you know, you just spend so much time working and, and with those colleagues. And I think the the there's an element of, of fear or or anticipated remorse at a place like HSBC because I I really loved the international element of it. I love that it was a multicultural workforce. I love that it's it took me abroad. So there was a, a professional fear of leaving that. And then on the you know there was obviously uh, I had made a, an incredible network of friends and colleagues that I was I was worried to be giving up, but. You know, if I think back to the decision, there was there was a personal element. Um, so on the IM program, um, my time was kind of wrapping up, and it, it was time to move move on again. I was at this point, I was back in Colorado. Um, I had moved to Colorado with HSBC as kind of my last posting um, to build out a, a mid market business here, and it was time to move again. And as much as it was exciting to start thinking about, okay, are we going to go to Brazil? Are we going to go to China? Um, we had, uh, my partner and I had a daughter during COVID and, you know, being away from family for 15 years and now having the first grandchild, we wanted to stay close to, to either my parents or, or her parents. So that was a, a deeply personal element. And on the professional side, you know, there was still a lot of finance to be explored within HSBC. Um, but to a degree, I was starting to feel comfortable because I kind of knew the workings. I knew people in all of our business units. I knew people in most countries where we were. And so I thought it'd be fun to, to really kind of shake the snow globe again uh, and see how the sausage gets made somewhere else, right? Excuse the phrase, but um, you know, it'd, it'd be interesting to really see how somebody else uh, goes to market, how somebody else thinks about um, you know, the products they're offering, the customers they're serving, et cetera. Yeah, well, so, so you've got you've got now you've got a, a decent compare and contrast. So HSBC, you know, big global bank operating in 60, 70 countries, you did five different roles. And now you're working at Comerica. Tell me a little bit about tell me a little bit about Comerica, what it is. Tell me a little bit about how it's different from the big beast that is HSBC. Just that so you've got a bit of compare and contrast would be great. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, and, and I should have mentioned part of the, in the last years at HSBC, I was really doubling down on serving technology clients. Um, so leading kind of origination teams uh, on the East and West Coast that were exclusively focused on kind of mid-tier technology clients and, and working with a colleague who had kind of stood up uh, and was a product manager for venture debt. So we were just kind of dabbling in the space, but it was at a, a much later stage and, and I really wanted to be earlier stage. So when I thought about you know what's next, there was only at the time Silicon Valley Bank, Comerica Bank, maybe one other bank that had any kind of track record in this space. 
or a couple of private debt funds and ultimately uh, landed at, at Comerica for, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, from a compare and contrast, you know, Comerica Bank as a, as a whole entity is about 10,000 people. So that's as a start, 120th the size of HSBC. And so that on its own, even though it's a public company, even though it's, it's still a relatively large company, um, speed to market and how nimble we, we are in our behavior and our cadence and our culture is, is vastly different uh, and, and is a lot of fun, right? If you see an opportunity, uh, go do it, right? Go try it. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, approvals that are needed. Um, that said, you know, we've, we've been in the market for 150 years. That's pretty similar to HSBC and we trade on that legacy. We kind of came up with the auto industry in the Midwest. And our platform is predominantly focused on kind of middle market, CNI kind of bank, traditional corporate banking. We have a wealth division, we have a, a retail bank division, and then we have a couple specialty industries, which is where I sit. Um, so I'm on a team of only 50 people, which is big, a big difference. You know, I used to talk to probably 50 people a day at HSBC. Uh, now my entire team who's focused on this venture space is, is 50 people. And so we're a much smaller platform. At HSBC, I found no matter what a client asked for, we had that solution somewhere. You just had to be able to navigate internally to find the right person. Here, we're a lot more targeted. So, you know, it, it helps with that nimbleness and we can be a lot more aggressive where we're relevant, um, but we're, a, we're not a fit for nearly as broad a, a set of, of clients as we were at HSBC, if that makes sense. Yeah, which is an, a really interesting one because a niche is good, but you also end up having to say no quite a lot, I can imagine. Uh, and we can't do right. that because that's not something not something that we do. Tell me tell me very quickly, uh, or, or kind of pricey, what, what is venture debt? How does it work? What, you know, and how does it differ maybe from, from the world of corporate debt? Sure, sure. So, you know, at a high level, we're supporting the innovation economy at the earliest stages. That, that's kind of how we, we tell our story. So that, that's to say we're predominantly focused on, on technology companies. Um, we have a health and life sciences practices as well. But what I'm looking at are SaaS companies, marketplaces, hardware, anywhere where technology is kind of core to the, to the company uh, IP. And we talk to founders from their first institutional funding. So we're trying to, to find companies that have traditional venture capital or potentially at a later stage private equity investment as, as early as you know, their first million dollar seed round all the way through to public companies. And our goal with venture debt is to essentially help put leverage on the equity that they've raised um, to extend runway, help them grow further until their future rounds. But it is vastly different than what you and I had done on the corporate and investment banking side because First and foremost, there is no cash flow. None of these companies are, are actually generating cash, which for most people in finance, for most bankers, immediately makes your hair stand up and, and makes you recoil. And so there's, you know, there's different metrics that we're looking at and different things we're considering um, when we're running, you know, we still run financial analysis, but it's not just what is your operating margin, uh, you know, how many times EBITDA can, can we put uh, leverage on? We think a lot about top line growth. So um, annual recurring revenue, ARR, revenue, that, that's a really good indicator of what kind of product market fit you have, how quickly you're growing and it's being adapted. We think a lot about efficiency. So gross margins, um, rule of 40, maybe some of your listeners have heard of, um, you know, which is a, a measure of both profitability and top line. 
things like uh, customer acquisition cost versus lifetime value of a customer, and then recurring revenue rates, which feed into that. So upsells, downsells, churn, how much kind of renewal uh, you tend to get. So this isn't this isn't a this isn't a kind of frontline traditional form of finance that you would expect necessarily in a kind of graduate milk ground or grad you know graduate career route. So let's say someone's listening to this podcast maybe at university and is super interested a in the venture space in the early stage technology space and then also wants to get a bit of banking experience as well. How would you how would you recommend a younger person navigates their way? to this type of space within this industry? Yeah, I think, so there's a couple of things. You know, like any other job, it, it's an important to map out the market. And that was a big part of what I was doing when I was leaving HSBC was, okay, if I knew I want, you know, it, the, theoretically, I, I did this exact transition just as a mid-career stage. And so mapping out the market, what kinds of venture debt are there? Who's serving the technology companies that I want to serve? How are they serving them? Um, and in figuring out what those different players are, what the, the nuance is, but, you know, reaching out and talking to people in, in venture debt, you've got the kind of banks, you've got the private funds, and then you've got the alternative capital, like revenue financing, factoring folks. And so talking to people at companies in each of those spaces to understand what's different and how they go to market, what's different and how they underwrite, how they provide capital is, is really important to know where you want to land. And then I think a, a really important piece to keep in mind that, that drew me here um, but maybe isn't for everyone. You know, the, the, the best part of investment banking is you're working with the biggest companies uh, on deals that are hitting the newspaper, super exciting, super fast paced. The worst part for me was a public CFO knows what he or she needs. You know, they are very, very adept. They've been around the block. And so oftentimes the deals we were a part of, they were talking to their, their panel of 10 banks, but they, they knew what their deal was going going to look like, whether it was bank debt that was syndicated, whether it was, it was uh, you know, public market uh, debt, whether it was equity, whatever we were helping with. And so they would kind of pass you a deal and say, sign up or don't. And I wanted a much more hands-on kind of consultative approach. And that's why I've slowly moved down market uh, through my time. And in, in venture debt, you know, we're working with founders uh, most of the time, um, maybe in the later stage, they have a, a CFO or a finance professional, but oftentimes founders who have no finance background, they've got a deep technical expertise. They're in their early stages. There's no, maybe they have somebody who's doing accounting for them, but there's no real finance leader. And so you need to, they rely on you to be their partner. And so I think anybody leaning into this space, you want to make sure you, you know, your, your kind of financial statements in and out that that's the basics, but you also need to be prepared to have a lot of you know, very rudimental conversations and very basic conversations around capital structures, the advantages of debt versus equity. It's, you know, both you and I have spent time in education as well. And, and there's very much a, an education part of this that probably isn't for everyone, but if you're into it is, is a great opportunity. That's super helpful. Thank you so much, Ross. I tell you what, we could talk uh, for hours and there's so much that I want to cover, but in the interest of time and in the interest of the patience of the audience, uh, I was wondering if I could just do a very quick wrap up, quick fire round, because I know that that's the kind of thing that podcasts tend to do. Uh, are you up for this? Yeah, of course. Of course. Hit me. Let's do it. All right. Quick fire round. What's the one bit of advice that you wish you had when you started out on your career? 
Uh, I think act like an entrepreneur. You, you don't need to own your own business to, to have an entrepreneurial mindset. So, you know, think about what's next, anticipate your leader's needs and go and do it. Who was, who was the best junior or best direct report that you've ever managed and why? Uh, you know, a couple of folks come to mind without, without naming names, but I think the best behavior I saw, you know, the two things I saw, one was that entrepreneurial mindset. So they were showing up to me with work that I knew was around the corner, but hadn't necessarily delegated yet. Uh, and they brought their kind of whole personality, whole selves to work. I think there's a early in your career, you tend to really try and stay in a narrow barrier and make sure you're doing what you think a young finance professional should dress like and talk like and act like. And, and in reality, we're all people and, and we want to we wanna know more on the personal side about each other. What's the, uh, what's the funnest part of your job? And conversely, what's the dullest part of your job? <laughs> the funnest part, you know, I never thought I'd be in, in this industry as long as I have. I love looking into new business models and meeting new companies almost every day, certainly every week. You meet inspiring people who are much smarter than me and, and working on big problems of the future. So I, I love um, the pace of that. And that, you know, we talked about me getting bored easily. That's great. The dullest would have to be uh, expenses and annual training. Yeah, those are those are pretty bad. I think I think everyone would agree on that one. Uh, what's your favorite? Consensus, notwithstanding, yeah, okay. <laughs> notwithstanding uh, the market maker, what's your favorite finance podcast? Yeah, it's it's Amplify, obviously. Um, you know, I, I I work at the kind of convergence of finance and technology, um, so I really like Pivot with Scott Galloway and Kara Fisher. It's not a particularly technical. Um, listen, uh, you know, it can be a bit dramatic at times, but it, it's at that intersection where I spend a lot of my time. Finally, what uh, what was the last finance or tech or industry related book that you've read? Uh, well, I've been reading a lot about longevity and lifespan and, and parenting, given I have got a young baby, but uh, this may be a touchy subject for, for a British podcast, but I'm currently reading the autobiography of, of Ben Franklin, and he's kind of our entrepreneur in chief of our founding fathers. And a lot of it has been about how once we, we kind of bucked the, the, the UK kingdom, how we went and financed uh, building a new nation state. So that, that's been pretty interesting. Love it. Love it. Look. Ross, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for sparing uh, sparing your time so generously. Um, look, I've had a blast. It's been really, really good to chat through your career, your experiences. Obviously, you're still at the kind of early to midpoint of your career, so really excited to see what happens next. Um, as ever, listeners, please do subscribe to the pod uh, and please share your thoughts with us on LinkedIn. Uh, we would love for you to subscribe and follow us on LinkedIn and maybe write a comment. Any other questions that you might have for Ross, I'm sure he'd be delighted to answer because we unpack quite a lot in this podcast. So thank you, every uh, everyone, and thank you very much, Ross. Cheers, Stephen. Nice to see you.